good morning. How are we doing? Oh, man, this is great. It is so good to be back here with you. Um, some of you I have had a privilege to meet, and some of you I have not. For those of you who don't know who I am, who is this guy? Uh, my name is Josh, and I attend the Montrose campus. Um, and there in the state of Pennsylvania, I am a banker. Now, that'll come back into play a little bit later. Don't you worry. Um, but it has been a privilege of mine to, to allow... Um, and as we allow our pastors to take some vacation and some time away to rest, it's a privilege of mine to come in and stand here where they normally do. So if you were coming expecting to hear this guy from Oklahoma, I'm not him, all right? So don't you, don't you worry. Um, <laughs> but it's great to be here with you. Um, here at Bridgewater, uh, we, like other churches, pursue certain things. But just like individuals, there's no church that is exactly the same. You can look at each of you, and we each have our own individual characteristics. So at Bridgewater, we're, we're in that same way. We're different from other churches. We have things that set us apart, things that identify us and help us um, I really uh, set us apart as to who we are as a church. And so if you're here this morning and you're visiting, you're checking us out. This is a great opportunity for you to kind of get an idea as to who we are and why we do what we do. And so we're starting this new series called This Is Us. And really that's the goal is to kind of help you and help us identify who we are. What sets us apart? What makes us distinct? Each week we're going to be identifying um, a certain parts that, that really do answer the question, why do we do what we do? In the corporate world, we have mission statements and we have objectives that we are pursuing. And as a church, we're no different. Our mission is to do what? To make more and better disciples. What you didn't hear was more and better disciples of Jesus. That's who we are. How? How do we do that? We have five distinct core values that, are, that, that we believe allow us to, to pursue that mission. And so each week throughout the next couple of weeks, we're going to identify and talk about one of those core values. And so today we're going to talk about we give because he gave. And I know what you're thinking. Bring the banker in to talk about giving, right? Bring the banker in to talk about money. It's actually a little bit different uh, concept that we're going to talk about than strictly um, giving and strictly with your money. As a church, we value radical generosity. We don't just want your money. Our executive pastor sitting here, he's, he, he's not cringing at all. We don't just want your money. We want to be radically generous, radically crazy. When people look at us, they go, what on earth is Bridgewater doing? That's who we want to be. Why? Well, simply because we have an example of, of radical generosity that was given for us. The absolute most preeminent example of sacrificial generous giving was given to us when God sent his son Jesus to this earth to die for us. And so as a church, our desire should be 
to follow that example. To, to pursue generosity with such extremes that there's no other word for it than radical. Growing up, I grew up in a small town called Orlando, Florida. Some of you might have heard of that small town. Um, Growing up in that small town, I went to a Christian school. Now, some of you, when you think of a Christian school, now I know we have a Christian school kind of in the shadows over there, so maybe you have a more correct view of a Christian school like I do. But some of us, when we think of a Christian school, we think of this elite powerhouse of recruiting prowess, bringing in the best academics and the best athletes, bringing them all together to pursue this, this higher, higher field. And, and down in Orlando, Florida, you might think that that's the kind of school I went to. Well, when I graduated, I like to remind my kids that I graduated fourth in my class. Some of you are approaching that graduation. That's, that's pretty awesome. My kids remind me that I only had seven people in my class. So even though I graduated fourth, I was in the lower 50th percent somehow in my school. But that kind of helps you identify what type of school I went to. As a seventh grader, I remember that I was invited to play on the varsity football team because for some reason, a school that graduates seven people decided that 11-on-11 tackle football was what we needed to pursue. I don't know why, but anyways, as a seventh grader, I was invited to be on the varsity football team. And no, that was not because I was awesome (laughs) That was not because I looked even remotely what I look like today. No, I was a warm body. And I could don a helmet and shoulder pads. As a seventh grader, I remember looking up to these athletes, these juniors, these seniors, these these men. And I remember their speed and their, their agility and their athleticism. And it was something that truly I aspired to. I wanted to be like them. And so throughout the day, I would wear the same kind of clothes that they wore. I would talk in the same way that they talked. Because I I wanted to model my life after their example. And I remember at the end of my seventh grade year, I came up with some goals. Like, I'm going to do some things. And I had two goals. All right? First goal, I wanted to be able to tackle... And be tackled without crying. (laughs) Don't laugh. That is so, you guys are mean. I was in seventh grade. I was like five foot three, 110 pounds. Come on, that's mean. It was a realistic goal. I wanted to be able to tackle somebody without getting up and my eyes watering. Second goal was I wanted to build mass and muscle. Right? Many of you middle school guys, you can understand and appreciate that, that desire. I wanted to build mass and muscle. And so I began to pursue both of those things. And I enlisted the help of my parents. And my mom, she went out and helped. She was willing to buy certain foods that were going to help me bulk up. She was going to help me with my diet. And my dad, he was willing to put together a training regimen that was going to help me achieve my goal. And he said, uh, we're, going to, we're going to start working out. What I wanted, this is what I wanted. I wanted a gym membership, right? 
I wanted the cut-off shirts, you know. You know the ones. I wanted the, the, the fingerless gloves. I wanted the belt. And I wanted a gold chain. And I wanted to walk around like I was, like I was it. And my dad bought me a garage sale workout bench. And some dumbbells and some barbells. And he said, let's start working out. You're going to need to do push-ups. You're going to need to do pull-ups. You're going to need to do crunches. You're going to need to run. Anybody want to guess how long that lasted? And you might look at me and say, well, it obviously did something. No, no. I was about five foot six when I went to college. So don't worry. I grew after college. Um, But it lasted about two days. See, see, my parents, they put me to a test. They said, you want these things. Well, you have to show yourself in these smaller things before we're going to entrust you or before we're going to, to really demonstrate. You're going to demonstrate for us that you are that kid. Because just desiring to be like those upperclassmen, that didn't mean much. Until I was able to show and demonstrate that I was willing to do those hard things. My parents, by not buying me that gym membership, by not supplying every desire that I wanted, truly modeled exactly something that, that, that I want to show in my kids. That, that you have to show yourself worthy and sometimes before you can um, be able to demonstrate that. Now, you might say that I failed. I would say I failed. I didn't pass their test. I, I, I didn't exceed what they set out as the litmus test for what they wanted to see. And as a result, you might say that my life truly wasn't willing to change to be like those other guys. Well, this morning we're going to look at a text where John, he kind of gives us a test. He, he puts it out there as, if you say you want to be like Jesus, right? We as a church say we want to make more and better disciples. A disciple is like a mini-me of Jesus. We want to make more mini-me's of Jesus. And John says, if you want, if, if that, we're going to put out a test. If you say you want to be more like Jesus, here's what you have to do. And so we're going to look this morning at at some familiar verses, arguably the most familiar verse in the whole entire Bible. Um, But we're going to look at how, how John demonstrates the foundation for being like Jesus. The foundation for being like Jesus is to love. It is to love. And, and we, we, we want to understand what love means. And John, thankfully, he puts this test out saying that if we are followers of Jesus, if our lives have been changed by Jesus, then we have to pass this test of love. So this is what John says in 1 John 3.16. Don't worry, we're going to get to John 3.16. But in 1 John 3.16, this is what he says. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down 
his life for us. You want to know what love is? Awesome. John helps us. I always love it when there's not a mystery, when there's not something that you have to read into, you have to really dissect. What exactly is John trying to say here? No, no. John is very plain to us, thankfully. This is how we know what love is. Jesus died. That's great. That's great that Jesus died for us. And, and I, would, I would make an assumption that when the readers who were reading this initial letter that John wrote, I, I would believe that they had heard this before. I believe that they had heard that Jesus died for them. I would make an equal assumption that many of us, maybe even most of us, have heard that same thing. Jesus died for you. See, see, some of us, like this picture here, some of us, if you put it, yeah, some of us, we understand that there is man and there is God. And, and, and this is us. But we're not connected to God, right? There, there's, a, there's a chasm. There's a, there's a separation. Go ahead to the next one. And that separation is filled up with sin. Now, I know you're good people. I know. I'm not. I'm not a good person. I am filled with pride. I am filled with anger. I am filled with jealousy. All of those things are sin. And those things truly have, have, have separated me from God. So, so how do I connect back with God? How, how do I get to the place where I'm able to have a relationship with God? Well, well, we have this bridge that when Jesus came to this earth, he died on this cross. He allowed access to God. And what First John was saying is, is, this is how we know what love is. Jesus died for you. We as a church want to pursue radical generosity. And we're going to look to the supreme example of that. His sacrifice was the absolute ultimate expression of God's love. God offering up his only son to die in our place. I'm a father of two boys. I might have said this before to you. I'm a father of two boys. I would not sacrifice either of them for any of you. I wouldn't. Don't take this the wrong way, Brett, but I don't love you enough. I don't love you enough to sacrifice my kids for you. And yet, God sacrificed his only son for people who hate him. John says, if we're talking about love, then Jesus has to be our standard for love. Not Hollywood's version of love. Not Shakespeare's version of love. Not the high school drama version of love. Not I love tacos. We have to have Jesus as the standard when we are looking at what is love. John confronts us, and really we're going to look at what John's confrontation or really kind of, sometimes the Bible just kind of punches you in the mouth a little bit and you have to take it 
And I think that's what this verse is really alluding to. John says there is no close. There is no honorable mention to when it comes to what is love. Jesus is the preeminent example. We find that in the most arguably the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, we, we once again see that God loved the world. And how much did he love? He gave. Because God loved, he gave. He gave his one and only son. Jesus giving up his life was the ultimate act of love outrageously, radically generous. Understand that no one else has walked this earth who was able to say, I am the best. I deserve to be served. You need to bow before me. No one else else has walked this earth with that ability except for Jesus Christ. And yet, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, that, that even though he was God, even though he was God in verse 6, he says, though he was God, he did, not, he did not think of equality with God as something to be grasped or something to cling to. And then in verse 7, he says this. He says, instead, he gave. He, he gave up his powers. He gave up his privilege. He gave up his role. And took on the form of a servant. And he humbled himself. Which means that he put himself low. So humbled that he was willing to die on a cross. This is the standard. This is the standard of what it means to love. This is, what it, this is the standard of what it means to call yourself a follower of Jesus. And so, after setting this bar where John said it, he immediately turns his focus to us. John immediately begins to direct, uh, direct his attention to us, to whether or not we demonstrate that kind of love. This is where the test comes in. I, I can't truly know any of your hearts but you do. So put yourself to this test as what John is about to to identify. If you have received this gift of love, do you give it away? Have you been changed by it so much that we treat people the way Jesus treated them? John is saying that generosity really shouldn't be an exception to the rule. Generosity is the rule. You being generous should not be something that sets you apart in this room. That just should be who you are. In in 1 John, this is what we continue to read, the second part of verse 16. It, It says this, And we ought to... And remember, John has taken, this is what love is. 
Jesus laid down his life. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Again, sometimes the Bible just kind of smacks you in the face. So as we begin to identify this test, the first thing that we want to ask ourselves, or the first part of this test is this, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down. My love for God is tested through generosity to people. You want to know how much you love God? How generous are you to other people? John says that if we received the gift of the, the generous gift of love that Jesus offered for us, we will be changed. We will become like the one who gave it to us. And then we will give it to others. And that's crazy talk, right? That's a super, super high standard that John has laid out for us. And maybe, maybe you're sitting there this morning going, Josh, how on earth am I supposed to do that? We're talking about Jesus. How on earth am I supposed to, to love someone so much that I'm willing to lay down my life for someone else? Is it even fair for us to expect you to do that? I mean, you might say, Josh, if, if I make the decision today to love Jesus and, and to accept Jesus as my Savior, does that mean tomorrow I'm going to have to make a choice, my life or somebody else's life? Maybe, but probably not. So then why would John put it out there that extreme? Well, it's interesting because he says you have to be willing to lay down your life for somebody else, but then what does he do? He, he begins to dissect it into smaller bites. What does that look like so you might say this is the day-to-day how we would do this verse 17 says this if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them how can the love of God be in that person here's how we know here's the test to know if I am the type of person who will lay down my life for someone else if I'm the type of person that, that will be able to make that choice if and when it ever comes, will I lay down my life for someone else? This is what John says. You'll do the small things. You'll do the things that are a little bit smaller. You see, because as you begin to do those smaller tasks, making that bigger choice is easier. This was modeled by the great theologian Captain America. Um, you see, all throughout his life, he stood up to the bullies. He did those little things, and then it culminated when the guy threw the grenade, and what happens? He dies on the grenade. He was willing to sacrifice himself for his troop. It, that actually is a model of our military branches. Making those small sacrifices for someone else, many of them ultimately sacrificing their life 
for their fellow Americans. This is what John is getting at. The kind of person who is radically generous. If you want to be the person who is radically generous, you will first be generally generous. Your generosity won't be so extreme. If you want to be radically generous, then you're going to start off being generally generous. The kind of person who's received the gift of God's love and Jesus will be generous. And those small acts of generosity will grow. It will just be a part of who you are. But we still can come back to that question. Josh, you really want me to be willing to lay down my life for someone else? Is that, is that really what, what, what you want me to do? To, to be willing to die for my neighbor? I mean, you might, with me, say, Josh, that's a standard, man. That's a high standard. But John pivots. And he says, instead of looking at that, let's look at those needs around us. Jesus, throughout his ministry, he, he was asked, you know, how are we supposed to love those around us? Who's my neighbor? I mean, we have the story of the Good Samaritan, right? And the Good Samaritan, most of us, if not all of us, know that story. This man found another man in need, didn't know him, Probably didn't uh, care about him, but yet he loved him. He, he saw a need. He had the resources to fulfill that need, and then he acted, and he met that need. John says, if we're not willing to do something simple, then it's unlikely that you have the love of God in you. It's unlikely that you've ever been changed by God. And you might say, you might have failed the test. At Bridgewater, something that makes us so unique is that we are filled with generous givers. I mean, we give away money like it's free. And we do. We give away hundreds of thousands of dollars every year to people that we will probably never meet. And you might hear, that's crazy. And it is. It is crazy to give away money to somebody that you'll never, ever meet. But if we say we have the love of God in us, then we are going to pursue generous acts. Because it's not just about what's up in your head. Remember when I was working out, I wanted in my head, I wanted to be like them. And thinking about it did me no good. Didn't help me achieve that standard. Thinking about, man, I really hope that all those foster kids get a home. I just really hope they do. I really hope those homeless people, the people's house burned down, I really hope they, they get a place to live. Thinking about it, guess what that does? I'm going to be a little bit harsh. Nothing. John continues in verse 18. 
This is what he says. Let us not love with words or speech. Let's not just talk about it. Instead, let us love with actions and in truth. See, the second part of our test is this. My generosity to people is tested through action. My generosity is tested through action. As followers of Jesus, we can be lulled into uh, sleep by spiritual activity with no tangible impact on people's lives. We might have wonderful intentions. You came to church this morning. You, you put on your Sunday vest. You worshiped. You sang. You raised your hands. You clapped. But is that how we are supposed to show love and be generous to others around us? To, because without being generous, I'm demonstrating that I don't have much concern for my neighbor. All throughout the Bible, we're reminded of this fact. And this week I was reading in James chapter 2. James, the brother of Jesus, said this. He says in James chapter 2 verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? And then he goes on and he says, suppose a brother or sister comes to you without clothes or daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical need. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. That's like coming into worship every Sunday, praising God, saying, I love God, and then the next time you have an interaction with God is next Sunday. The next time you have a demonstration of that love is next Sunday when you raise your hands to worship. James says, in the same way, faith without action is dead. I was, uh, last week I was reading, um, I was preparing for this and I was sitting on the porch and my daughter, uh, she came out and my daughter is going into her senior year in college and she was expressing her need for school supplies. Apparently, when they graduate high school, you still have to buy them school supplies. I, I thought it was, I was done, but I guess not. Um, so she was rattling off this long list of, you know, her, her notebooks and her notepads and, you know, all of the many things that she needed. And I jokingly said this to her. I said, I love you. Take great notes. Do well in college. I hope for the best. If that was the end, if I didn't go and buy her notebooks, if I didn't go and buy her, her pens and her supplies, I would be like James saying, my love for you is dead. If I'm not willing to, to do the small things, because in the grand scheme of things, buying some notebooks and some pens, that's, that's hardly significant. But if that was the limit of my love, saying, I hope you do well, then you might say, well, Josh, do you, how do you demonstrate that love? That would be like someone coming and saying, man, I really just, I lost my job. I, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I got to pay my rent. And you say, man, that's, 
that, that's really tough. I'm just reminded that God loves you. Have a good day. Would that person walk away thinking, man, Isaac loves me. And God loves me. Would, would that person leave with that thought? No. If, if that's the kind of God that Isaac serves, I don't want any part of it. Because we are called to be generous. And as a church, we give because we have a very, very generous God who gave to us. So my middle school self, if I'm putting myself to the test in hindsight, I wanted to be like those older football players. How serious was I about getting huge? Well, judging by my actions, I wasn't. I wasn't very serious. I wasn't very committed. I wasn't committed to that goal. I didn't do the little things that were required of me to achieve that goal, to be willing to do those more difficult things. Sometimes I think it's a, it's a real shame that we receive this loving, generous gift that God gave us, the forgiveness of sins. And we're not willing to be generous to other people around us. I'm not willing to be generous to the people that God brings in my life. I'm not willing to do those small, those small things. So if love has been defined once and for all by Jesus dying on the cross, sacrificing his life for us, he gave his life for all mankind, what is my response to that? What is my response to that love? How can I be generous? Well, I want to give you some, some real quick, four or five quick things that you can do. Josh, I want to be generous. I don't know where to start. And I'm going to put a little disclaimer as a banker. It often has nothing to do with money. Am I wrong, Brett? Often has nothing to do with money. Your generosity is not equal to the money that you give. So if you want to be generous, the first thing that you need to do is this. You need to take stock of your resources. Now, the resources, a lot of times, are our immediate thought as we go to money. Resources are really what's around you. What do you have control over? Some of you may not have money. Do you not have any resources? Well, no, you have time. You have energy. You have maybe a school you go to. Maybe you have a job that you attend to. That's a resource that you have. I will never be able to share the love of God with your coworker unless our paths somehow cross. And yet, you have that ability every day, Monday through Friday, to interact with them. What are the resources that you have? So take stock. Take inventory of those resources. The second thing that you need to do is see a need that you can meet. Ending global poverty. 
most of us don't have the ability to do that. That's not a need that I can meet, really. Identify a need that you can meet. Often, it's in your neighborhood. It's at your place of work. It's at your place of school. It's within your sphere of influence. That, meet, that need that needs to be met. The third thing is this. You ready? Super hard. Meet the need. So you have the resources. You've identified them. Identify a need. You figured out what to do. The third thing is do it. Meet that need. The good Samaritan. He had resources, right? We don't know how wealthy this guy was. But he had resources. He had a donkey. He had some money. He saw a guy laying on the side of the road. He identified a need. He needs help. Not a doctor. Not not a physician's assistant. This guy's hurt. He needs help. And then he met that need. And here's the kicker. All right? This is the one. This is, I would argue, this is the most important part of this uh, test. You want to actually demonstrate you have the love for God? Ready? Here it is. The fourth thing is this. Do it over again. Doing it once, awesome. Working out once, easy money. Doing it over and over and over again. That's how we become radically generous. Walking out of this room right now, finding some guy on the side who needs help, who who needs a a cheeseburger. That's great. Do it again. And then when you're done with that, do it again. This is what sets us apart. This is what we want to identify, Bridgewater. When people say, Bridgewater Church, that's that church that just every time there's a need with the county when they have these foster kids, that church just steps up. At, at, at Montrose campus a couple of weeks ago, we, we heard that there was these, this family, it was a large family with lots of kids, and they had to be removed from that house, and so they got scattered, and, and praise God, people of Montrose, Bridgewater, they stepped up and they took them into their house, but there was an immediate need of diapers and formula. And that afternoon, I can only, I didn't actually see it, but I can imagine this small mountain of diapers and formula showed up. If that was the only thing that Bridgewater Montrose ever did, would people identify us as a radically generous church? Probably not. But over and over and over again, we're called to do this same act of generosity. So, so let us individually do what God calls us and what we as a church want to collectively do, and that's be generous. We give because he gave. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love for us. And certainly, God, we do not deserve your love. There's nothing we could do to earn it. There's nothing that we could ever do to merit you sending your son Jesus to this earth. But God, you loved us so much that you did just that. A radical act of generosity. 
God, what a privilege it is to call ourselves children of God, to be, to be identified in the same breath as that act of love that your son Jesus demonstrated for us. God, this morning, if there's anyone in here who for the first time they heard about that, that sacrifice, that act of love, that gold standard for what it means to love, they heard this morning that their sin separates them from God. This morning, I, I pray that you would cause them to, to talk to somebody near them, to talk to me, to talk to Isaac, to talk to one of the people on the stage and say, I need to know what I have to do to be in a right relationship with God. I, I need access to God. And today would be that day. God, this morning, I, I, I know I was challenged. I know you convicted me this morning. And I pray that each of us in our own way as we compare our love, God, that we would not lose sight that the greatest act of love ever given was your son, Jesus, and that we would want to model that same sacrifice to others. God, may today be a day that marks a drastic change in our lives. God, we thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.